Okay, today will be the first of two classes uh, where I'm going to be talking about the contrasting value systems of the North and the South as the nation careened towards the uh, Civil War. And I just think it's so important to understand these two value systems because you can't understand why the Civil War occurred without understanding them both. Today, we're going to be doing the North. Now, by the 1850s, as the Civil War approached, uh, there were two value systems, one rooted in the North, one rooted in the South, uh, that were facing off against each other uh, in the United States. Now, what's interesting about these value systems is that they each took some of the same principles, the same words, liberty, freedom, equality, and used them to proceed in strikingly different directions. One value system used them to justify human freedom. The other value system used them to justify human bondage. Ultimately, only one of them could survive because they were incompatible with each other. Now, the fact that they had co coexisted with each other since the founding of the uh, nation uh, was an aberration, a set of historical circumstances that could not last forever. Someday, there would have to be a reckoning, a settling of accounts. And, of course, in 1861, there was. So what we'll be doing over the next two classes, then, is to examine these two competing uh, and ultimately, at least in my view, contradictory value systems, north and south, look at the assumptions and the definitions uh, and the paradoxes uh, of each, as well as each critique of the other, the south of the north and the north of the south. Now, what we will find may be somewhat surprising to you, because while we can expect slavery to be the primary cause of the Civil War, and it was, at least in my view, it was not the cause in the direct and literal way that we might think, as in slavery was wrong, slavery was immoral, and the North fought to end it. As is the case so often in American history, there was more to it than that. We'll see that most Northerners did believe that slavery had to end. But not because it was morally wrong towards blacks, although some Northerners believed that, but because slavery supported an entire Southern value system and social system that was holding the progress of the nation back. That's the essence of the northern critique of slavery. That's the essence of why so many northerners fought against slavery. But there's more to this. Economically, well, let me, let me back up. The, the economic progress of the United States uh, and the economic progress of the north the ability of Americans in the North and in the West to improve themselves, uh, to be upwardly mobile, to make money. This is what was the problem with slavery in terms of, uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, 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 the North. Uh, the, 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 wait a second, let me, let me back up here. This is a, this is a difficult concept, actually. Uh, uh, you all know that slavery is the cause of the Civil War, okay? But 
slavery as a moral system, as being a bad thing, as being a wrong thing, is not necessarily the cause of the Civil War. Remember when I said that Americans, their, uh, 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 their, their, fa- well, maybe I didn't say this to you, but Americans' favorite color is green. Okay, did I ever say this to you? Americans' favorite color is green. It's not black or white. It's green. Economics. Well, if any kind of system is holding the North back from making money, and slavery was, and I'm going to explain this, uh, then Northerners are against slavery. That's not because so much it's immoral, but because it's hurting them in the pocketbook. And again, here, American history is throwing a sort of a curveball, an ironic uh, curveball, in which the things we expect to happen do occur. Uh, uh, The slavery issue does cause the Civil War, but not in the way or for the reasons that we expect. So we will start our uh, examination of these two conflicting value systems with the North, and we'll start with another confounding paradox. It's fair to say, to descri- to, I think, to, to describe the North uh, 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 as well as the West, and when I talk about the West, I'm talking about states like this, uh, uh, Wisconsin, Illinois, Ohio, uh, Indiana. Uh, it's fair to describe this North and West in the United States during the 1840s and 1850s as racist. That is to say, uh, in these areas, not the South, but the North, or not just the South, but the North, there's a tremendous amount of hostility towards blacks uh, on a personal level. And, of course, in the North, we're talking about free blacks. You know, throughout these areas, there is that racist hostility to blacks. Uh, With the exception of the New England states, blacks could not vote in the North. They could not serve on juries. They could not hold office. Certain states, most notably Abraham Lincoln's home state of Illinois, barred blacks from entering entirely. On a social level in the North, they were often shunned and harassed, sometimes even attacked uh, on the street. Whites refused to live near them or live around them. They were considered by most Northerners and Westerners to be inherently inferior. And I might add here that one of those whites who thought that they were inherently inferior was Abraham Lincoln himself. So on an individual level, Most uh, northern and western whites disliked blacks intensely, engaged in racist behavior. But here's the paradox. Here's the irony. These same whites also hated slavery with a great passion. And between 1861 and 1865, 364,000 northern and western whites gave their lives in large part to destroy slavery. Now, that's a lot of people. It's over six times as many soldiers than who were killed in the war in Vietnam. We've lost a little over 4,000 in Iraq, so think about 364,000 uh, northern uh, and western white soldiers dying to end slavery during the Civil War. So it seems to make no sense. Then. Why would so many people who dislike blacks also feel so passionately that slavery would have to go. That they gave their lives uh, 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 in such vast numbers so that slavery would go. Well, to explain this paradox, to unravel uh, this mystery, we have to start with an idea that also might seem strange and counterintuitive. And that is, to most white northerners, slavery was more about whites, about themselves, than it was about blacks. Slavery 
affected whites, affected them. And that's why they fought it and the South so hard. Now, this is not to say that at least some of them did not believe that slavery was immoral. Some did, obviously. Uh, abolitionists did. And abolitionists uh, believed that uh, it was immoral in its effect on the slaves themselves. It was bad for the slaves. But I think that even more Northerners and Westerners, white Northerner and Westerners, viewed it as immoral in other ways, which only indirectly affected blacks, as affronts to the idea of equality, white equality, and liberty, white liberty, and the values of hard work and self-reliance. In a way, slavery to these Northern and Western whites was a moral affront to what they thought America should be about. So what can untangle all these knots, so to speak, uh, unravel, or at least resolve all these apparent contradictions? We have white Northerners who don't like blacks fighting slavery, in large part because they find it immoral, but immoral as they think it affects them, not blacks. Well, the way to explain all this and to understand the value system of the white North and West before the Civil War is through the idea that was central and essential to this value system. And that is the idea of free labor. Free labor. Now, what were the elements of the free labor idea? Well, we've seen a good number of them before, especially in the ideas of the Whigs that we talked about earlier and of the white middle class in the North and the West that we also discussed earlier. The free labor idea was simply the idea that a man could get ahead in American life by working hard, that America was an open and fair society in which upward mobility was not just possible but probable, that America was a society in which there were no fixed positions in life, no rigid class barriers, in the words of perhaps the greatest proponent of the free labor idea, Abraham Lincoln, describing such upward mobility, Lincoln once said, the man who labored for another last year, this year labors for himself, and next year he will hire others to labor for him. American life in free labor ideology was an escalator continually going up, lifting hard-working men towards upward mobility turning employees into the self-employed and the self-employed into employers of others. These were free labor words. Work. Opportunity. Competition. Capitalism. Upward mobility. Middle class. Those are free labor words and also words like liberty, equality, and republicanism that we've discussed earlier. In free labor ideology, equality meant an equal opportunity to become unequal, much like the Whig idea of equality that I discussed earlier, but with a small but significant modification. The free labor idea of equality looked to a society where, uh, while some disparities in income and achievement uh, existed, most people would be in the same general range. In other words, it looked to a society where there were few huge companies 
and few millionaires and few poor people, but many middle-class people. In the free labor ideal, America would consist of a series of mid-sized towns and farms uh, housing mid-sized businessmen, industrialists, and commercial farmers. But free laborites were suspicious of the very rich, viewing them as anti-democratic elites. Now, this egalitarianism is reminiscent of the republicanism that we've already talked about, the idea of republicanism. I'll get to the Republican Party in a few moments. And for a free laborite, for someone who believed in free labor, the worst kind of uh, this uh, uh, inegalitarianism, this uh, aristocratic pretension of the very rich, was represented, not surprisingly, by the large planters of the South and what free laborites referred to derisively as the slave power. Thus, the adherence of the free labor idea combined to an extent the mindset of the Whigs, who glorified the middle class, and the Democrats, who were suspicious of the privileged aristocracy. Remember Andrew Jackson. And this brings us to the question of who these people who believed in free labor were. Who were they? and to an introduction of the Republican Party, uh, which, of course, I am distinguishing from the idea of republicanism. Republicanism, small r, not a political party, uh, uh, an idea, which we talked about, uh, the Republican Party, capital R, you know, the party that we know today. Now, the Republican Party really gave expression to these free labor ideas and embodied them. Uh, uh, now, the Republican Party as we know it today was founded just down the road in, uh, uh, in Ripon uh, in uh, 1854. Uh, at least legend has it. I don't know, has anybody ever been to the, uh, the little white schoolhouse in Ripon where the, uh, uh, where the Republican Party was supposedly founded? Yeah. yeah I, I, when I first got here, I, uh, I went down there. Uh, and I, I don't know whether it's still there, but uh, there's a Chinese restaurant across the street, at least when I was there, called the Republican Chinese Restaurant. Uh, I don't know whether it's still, you know, whether it's still in business, uh, but at least legend has it that that's where the Republican Party was founded uh, uh, in 1854. Now, while the Republicans were the successors of the Whig Party, which was basically disintegrating as the Republicans were being founded in 1854, uh, 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 there were differences between Whigs and Republicans as well as additions and new elements uh, in the Republican, uh, Republican Party that had not been uh, in the Whig Party. The major difference between the Whigs and the new Republican Party were that the Republicans were unequivocally against slavery and specifically against its expansion into the territories, into the West. The Republican Party had been founded for that specific purpose. Now, while some Southern Whigs, many Southern Whigs, had supported slavery, and many Northern Whigs had been somewhat ambivalent about it, the Republican Party was united in its opposition to it. And, not surprisingly for this reason, the Republicans were a wholly sectional party, only from the North and the West. There were no Southern Republicans. And I mean that literally. It's not that it was a weak party in the South before the Civil War. It did not exist in the South before the war. Lincoln was not even on the ballot uh, in the South in 1860. Now, the Republican Party also took in elements of the Free Soil Party, 
uh, a smaller group which had uh, run candidates in the presidential elections of 1848 and 1852 uh, to oppose the extension of slavery into the West. And if you rec recall, the abolitionist Liberty Party, which we spoke of uh, in connection with Henry Clay's defeat in the presidential election of 1844. Now, here we should distinguish uh, what I'm calling anti-slavery or free labor men and abolitionists. Anti-slavery and free labor men uh, uh, oppose the extension of slavery into the territories, uh, but they're not going to try to end slavery in the South where it already exists, for now at least. Uh, they're uncomfortable with slavery. Lincoln is someone like this before the war. Uh, he's uncomfortable with slavery. He does view it as a moral wrong, but he's also realistic, and he says that it can stay in the South. He's hoping it will fade away, but it can stay in the South. So you have an anti-slavery uh, or free labor man. That's their position. Then, of course, there are abolitionists who are much smaller in number who just want to abolish slavery in the South. They, they want it to end everywhere. And I think that's the difference between the two. Now, the Republican Party also took in a group of nativists who were anti-immigrants. Uh, they were called the Know-Nothings. Uh, uh, and uh, we're not going to talk about them right now, but I will talk about them later. So there was an, uh, a Protestant anti-immigration impulse also that was in the Republican Party. Now, the Republican Party even attracted some Northern Democrats who had turned against slavery, like David Wilmot, for example, the Wilmot Proviso that I talked about earlier that was going to bar slavery from the Mexican War territories. Well, he was a Democrat. He was a Northern Democrat. Uh, uh, so the Democratic Party lost strength in the North uh, 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 through uh, a number of politicians who were just disgusted by the National Democratic Party, uh, Democratic Party's embrace of slavery, or it's, at least its indifference to the moral the moral aspect of it. So, the Republican Party was sort of a complicated amalgamation of ex-Whigs, Lincoln is an ex-Whig, uh, Free Soil Party members, abolitionists, uh, 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 anti-immigration activists or nativists, and even some ex-Democrats, all united in their belief that the expansion of slavery, uh, especially into the new territories, the Louisiana Purchase and Mexican War territories, must be stopped and embodying the free labor ideal. Now, what did the Republican supporters of the free labor ideal see when they looked towards the South? Well, they saw everything that the North was not, everything that free labor was not, and everything that a society should not be, in their view. They saw a small group of large slaveholders, the planters, dominating the entire southern society. This was anti-democratic, to say the least. They saw this group of planters set themselves up as a modern-day version of the landed aristocracy with incredible luxuries and fineries. This was anti-egalitarian, to say the least. They saw these planters living lives of luxury on the backs of other human beings who did their work for them. Flying in the face of the free labor admonition to work for yourself, to be independent. In fact, Republicans saw these southern aristocrats as having a contempt for work, a lack of respect for work, since their slaves did the manual work. A contempt that infected into the entire southern society. Because 
If hard work and work with one's hands was degraded and devalued, then so were the thousands of non-planter whites in the South uh, who also worked with their hands. Remember, I talked about the small farmers and the yeomen in the South. Republicans wanted a society where someone who worked with his hands, or just worked, was respected, not viewed as a loser. And in Republican view, that's exactly what Southern society did. It degraded hard work. Further, when Republicans looked South, they saw a society with virtually no chance for upward mobility. A stagnant society in which one was virtually frozen in the status that he inherited. Like some feudal society from the medieval age. If you were born a planter, you die a planter. If you were born a poor farmer, you die a poor farmer. And of course, if you were born a slave, you would die a slave. Republicans saw a society in the South with great extremes of wealth and poverty and with no substantial middle class, the bulwark, the essential element and underpinning of a free labor society in Republican view, and a society with no real chance to improve uh, one's position in life, to move up in class. Republicans saw a society where there was no incentive to try to better oneself because one could not better oneself. Uh, when the newspaper editor and free labor supporter Horace Greeley said, enslave a man and you destroy his ambition, his enterprise, his capacity, he could have been referring to the southern planters uh, uh, and the small farmers as well of the south in the view of Republicans because none of them had any incentive to work hard to improve their condition since none of them were going anywhere. The planters weren't going down and the small farmers and the slaves weren't going up. So in short, when free labor Republicans looked to the South, they saw a decadent, feudal, stagnant society with an inherited aristocracy which degraded honest labor, which was anti-democratic and was anti-egalitarian. In other words, everything that free labor society, as Republicans envisioned it, was not. And this Southern society had to go. But why? Why did Republicans believe the Southern society had to go? Even if it was completely different from Northern free labor society, why couldn't they just coexist by staying out of each other's way? Well, the answer to this, and the reason why they could not, lies not so much uh, in the North or the South, but in the West. Now, the issue of slavery in the territories in the West had caused the formation of the Republican Party in the first place. Lincoln, in fact, uh, became a Republican and re-entered politics after making a detour into private life to make a lot of money as a corporation lawyer uh, because of the issue of slavery in the territories. The West was essential to the Republican free labor program because it held the potential for upward mobility. For Easterners who hadn't been successful in the East, the West was a safety valve of sorts. If Easterners could not go West and obtain land, preferably cheap or free land, uh, they would pile up in the Eastern cities where unemployment would rise uh, uh, and consequently class conflict would arise. So poorer Easterners had to have somewhere to go and that place to go had to be the West 
to better themselves. Because if they couldn't, the entire Republican free labor edifice would collapse. Well then, why couldn't slavery exist in this western area at the same time uh, that these free laborers, poor free laborers from the east, came to the west to improve themselves? Why couldn't there be slavery there? Well, if you think about it, why would Easterners go west if it would be just like the South? Who would hire a laborer, for example, for wages? If there were slaves there who would work for nothing? You know, that saying, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? Who would work for wages if there was no possibility of substantially bettering himself? Who would work a small farm if he would be dominated by large plantations, which was the case in the South? Uh, large plantation owners, uh, uh, on whose sense of largesse and noblesse obliged the uh, small farmers would have to depend on. It's degrading. <laughs> now, Eric Foner, whose uh, book, or at least part of whose book, uh, Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, we read for today, summed it up best. I quote, The free white laborers of the North would never migrate to a land where labor was held to be disreputable, where social mobility was all but non-existent, and where they would have to labor in close proximity with slaves. Keeping slavery out of the West, then, was crucial, not just to the growth and health of the Republican Party uh, and the free labor ethos, but also to the economic health of the average white man in the East. And now, we begin to see why whites, with no affection for blacks personally, and no desire to live with blacks, many whites wish to keep black, slave, or free out of the territories entirely, why these whites could nonetheless oppose the institution of slavery so passionately, and how the seeming paradox that I stated at the beginning can be resolved. In the end, it wasn't so much about the effect that slavery had on blacks that was central to the free labor idea, but the effect that it had on whites. And it was the powerful idea of free labor that transformed anti-slavery from a rich man's elitist position, for example, William Lloyd Garrison, uh, who I spoke about earlier, the, uh, the great abolitionist, uh, was an upper-crust, upper-class New Englander, uh, as was Harriet Beecher Stowe, we also talked about, the author of uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was free labor that transformed this idea of anti-slavery from an upper-class idea uh, uh, to uh, the creed of the common man, the average man in the American North and West. Free labor gave the average man a system of values, a, a way of looking uh, at the world that made him hate slavery, even as he hated blacks at the same time. It furnished a practical argument against slavery to buttress the moral arguments that never seemed to move the mass of the whites in the North and West. Most Republicans uh, usually emphasized uh, uh, these practical over moral arguments uh, uh, while condemning slavery to uh, white audiences. And free labor, the free labor idea, gave the North and West a powerful new vehicle, the New Republican Party, to crystallize anti-slavery sentiment and use it to unite thousands of very different kinds of people in the North and West 
on a program that sometimes, not for most, the most admirable of reasons, spoke to them all. With this background, we can begin to see how, during the Civil War, white men, who perhaps had never even seen a slave, could fight and die by the hundreds of thousands to set them free. Now, we'll hear more about the free labor idea uh, after the Civil War, uh, when its weaknesses uh, as a system of economics became more apparent. In a rapidly industrializing North and West after the Civil War, uh, 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 a, uh, a region uh, which, except for the fact that it was industrialized and not agricultural, had started to resemble the South economically uh, in the sense of a permanent working class that couldn't go anywhere, that couldn't rise up, no possibility of upward mobility. After the Civil War, we'll start to see the limits of a free labor idea uh, that treated all workers as if they were incipient capitalists, uh, uh, as if their condition as workers was, was temporary. Remember what Lincoln said, a uh, employee yesterday, self-employed today, and employer tomorrow. Uh, 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 a free labor idea that viewed the interests of the working class and the large capitalists uh, as identical, uh, when obviously their, ident their, their interests after the Civil War were far from identical. Uh, you know, Andrew Carnegie's interests and the interest of somebody who worked in his steel mill were very different. different. Uh, and uh, a free labor ideal after, or idea after the Civil War, uh, uh, which began to blame those who were not successful uh, economically, who remained poor, branding them as failures, as lazy, ignoring the economic forces arrayed against them, blaming the victim, so to speak, and ignoring, most of all, the huge concentrations of capital and industry that made upward mobility virtually impossible in American uh, society after the Civil War. But in the 1850s, before the Civil War, of course, all this lay in the future. And the free labor idea seemed to most Republicans to provide uh, a rational, almost airtight set of values for themselves and for the entire nation as a whole. But another set of values existed in the America of the 1850s, held by another group of Americans, just as sure of their logic, their correctness, their explanatory power, just as sure as that they exemplified the good society, and just as sure that the free labor values of the North were fraudulent and bankrupt and corrupt and we'll discuss this other set of values, the values of the South, next time.